0: Just turn to uh, the book of First Peter. So thanks to our musicians for leading us, and to whoever put that video together. <laughs> That's become a Easter tradition for us here and um, glad that you're with us Hope that um I mean really there's not a whole lot that I can get here and uh say that's going to, in any way like make tonight complete you know we've seen we've seen the gospel we've sung the gospel uh, and really the scriptures would kind of complete everything, so really I could read a little bit and we could go, but you're not going to get off that easy I'm sorry to tell you um but we i say all that to basically say that that the the worship of the church, the gathering of the saints, um, is about these things. You know, it's about these uh, the, these reenactments of the gospel. It's about communion. It's about baptism. It's about singing. It's about the scriptures. It's about real like realizing the presence of God among us. You know, being just coming into this like awareness of His nearness which is no different in this room than it is anywhere that we go. And so it's carrying that with us as well as we, as we go forward, believing that God wants to speak to us tonight through the baptisms, through the video, through the songs, through the scriptures. Um, and so what I want to do tonight, you know, there's, there's like among, in preaching circles, it seems like a lot of times pastors on Easter Sunday, you know, they, they um, are afraid to bring something that's too heavy uh, and uh, I'm just going to bring something tonight that I think is on the heavy end of things, and it's uh, it's heavy for me, not in a like condemning, let's talk about how bad our sin is kind of way. That's where Lent has had us for weeks, right? But just in a way that maybe it's not the um, maybe it's not the Easter message that you're anticipating. Um, and before we get to First Peter two, I want to read from Hebrews twelve. You may have heard this before. It says. the throne of God. I want to focus in on that part of verse 2 when it talks about the joy that was set before Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, we've sung about this. We've, we've seen it in baptism. We spent uh, have spent six weeks of Lent headed toward the crucifixion. Thursday night uh, was... The Passover meal, and um, from Passover, f- from that meal and institution of the Lord's Supper, he went to Gethsemane, and he prayed, and then he was arrested, and he was tried, and he was convicted and sentenced to death, and he was tortured and then crucified, and then he died, and then he was buried. Um, all that, that sequence of events from Thursday night to Friday night, and then you go into this period of, your, of, of being like, I don't really know what to do with, with Saturday, you know, what do we do with Saturday um then sunday it's it's like it's all great and awesome right and so it's so easy to try to like look away from good friday because we know what sunday holds and we skip very quickly into that and it's easy to not want to participate in good friday you don't want to think about sad things you don't want to like you don't want to know all that kind of stuff but it's important that we understand that jesus endured that and there was joy that was set before him you know that's what the verse says there was something he was Focused on, and that 's why he endured and there's two important theological ideas I want to like kind of toss out there and, and get through um, as as quickly as I can and so just know that like these are these are worth entire like Sunday sermons stretched together for, for lengths of period of time, and i'm going to try to just do like a flyover real quick all right so there's two things to keep in mind before I really get to where where I 'm headed with all this in terms of the joy set before him. And there's, uh, the first thing is, um, it's known in theology circles as the hypostatic union. All right? So you can impress all your friends at work tomorrow with your vast knowledge of, uh, of that. Hypostatic union basically just means that Jesus, uh, that he was both God and man 100%, uh, 100% of the time. That as he walked the earth, meaning like from the time he was like in Mary's womb all the way until he ascended that he is, he's both fully God and fully man. And just because he ascended doesn't mean that that changes. So it's actually from conception all the way through eternity, he will be both man and God. And it's one of those things where, where we've tried for a long time to try to understand what that means and, and how that works. And it is a vast mystery. I mean, it's, It's equally as mysterious as the Trinity, as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being fully and equally God, yet there being one God. And you start to try to, you know, we want to break that apart and try to understand it. So we say, oh, it's like a shamrock, or it's like an egg, or it's like a tree, or it's like this, or this, or this. And there there is none of, like, none of those things fully help us understand the doctrine of the Trinity because there's, it's incomparable. So there just comes a point where you have to, like, say, my knowledge of this ends and there's this mystery ahead of us called the Trinity. Well, the hypostatic union—God, uh, Jesus being fully God and fully man in at, at all at the same time—that's another mystery. Um, in some ways, and there are some theologians that, that really would say this is actually more baffling than resurrection. You know, like how can he be both at the same time? Um, and there have been different suggestions about well, maybe he switches modes sometimes, or or maybe you know maybe. Uh, I don't know, sometimes when they get to describing it, it almost sounds like, like, uh, like, like schizophrenia or something like that, but it's, 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 none of, it's none of that. That Jesus was able to, like, he is so amazing that he is able to be both God and man at the same time. And they're distinct, they're not blurred together. You know, you don't have two different color liquids, and you pour them together and they make a third color. It's not really that either, that they're both coexisting within him, and there is, they interact in a way that we really can't figure out and pin down. But we want to. But we just can't. And so this idea that, that he is both, um, it's, it's a little bit, it's maybe helpful to understand. like, In terms of his, him having a human nature, he has a human nature just like we have a human nature. So when we see him being hungry, we see him being thirsty, when we see him sleeping and need, like needing rest those kinds of things, Uh, when we see him um, being reliant on the Holy Spirit's leadership, uh, when we see him experiencing things in linear time. These are all ways that he is human just like us. And at the same time, existing within him, somehow, he is also all those things that we know to be true about God. He's omnipresent, so he's everywhere in fullness at once. He's omniscient, he knows everything. And so all the things that we know about God, his eternal nature, all these kinds of things are, are existing within Jesus, and at the same time, all those human things are existing within him. And so when Jesus experiences something, he gets he, like, holistically experienced. So have you ever thought about, like there, there are these times when, when you're looking, like you read a passage of scripture and you're like, how does Jesus not know this? He's God, right? Well, it's possible for him to know something and not know something at the same time. Like in, uh, in Matthew 24, uh, he says, But concerning the day and hour, talking about the return of Christ, he says, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so in one sense, you're like, how does, he, how does he not know the hour of his return? Like, isn't he God? Like, yeah, but he's also man. And so it's possible for him to know and not know at the same time we just need to just write the word mystery across this but there is something that we are able to see over the course of his ministry it seems like although those two natures are interacting and there's things going on it's it seems that throughout his the nature of i'm sorry throughout his earthly ministry the majority of the time he humbles himself by limiting his human nature's access to his divine nature you and I probably wouldn't do that, right? Like, if we were God and man, everybody would know that we are God and we are man. But Jesus, for reasons that are only known to him, and we can posture guesses, but Jesus, as like in his human nature, humbled himself and limited how much he was accessing the divine nature. So, in a discussion about when he's going to return, and he knows... Like, his divine nature absolutely knows, and his human nature does not know. He could have been like, wh- however they communicate, let's just, I don't really anymore want to guess, because that freaks me out. Uh, but he could have accessed that divine nature, and be like, I'll tell you right when it is. But he humbled, it's almost like there's like a firewall or something. You know, like there, he humbled that communication and said, no, uh, only the Father knows. So when he's asleep in the boat and there's a storm going on, is he asleep in the boat, or is he holding all the universe together? Uh, it, well, both, you know. When Mary's six months pregnant, is there chaos all throughout the universe? No, he's holding it all together, and he's growing as a little baby in the womb. This is this beautiful mystery that we need to have like as much of a grasp on as we can, but for, this, for purposes tonight, we really need to think and, and be of the mindset that Jesus was a normal human like we are normal humans. He got thirsty, he got hungry, he, was, uh, he needed the Spirit to, to lead him. He, he didn't know what was coming next. So that's very important that we understand the majority of his earthly ministry, he, that is what humility looked like in his life. So the second big thing is this, uh, is that Jesus was a passive participant in his own resurrection. Okay, here's what I mean. So Fisher and Jenny get baptized. Were they active participants or were they passive participants? In one sense you could say, well they were active because they got into the water. But really they were passive because I was the one pushing them down and pulling them back up out of the water. Right? So they played a role. They positioned themselves to be baptized. But the actual baptism was done by me in a logistical sense. There are some verses, there's really two, uh, one's in John 2, one's in John 10, that, where Jesus talks about his like you know, laying down of his life and, and, and um, taking it back up again. But there's far more verses in the New Testament, uh, Acts 2, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 1, Ephesians 1, Romans 1, Romans 8, where, where it really speaks in terms of the Father and the Spirit being the ones to raise him from the dead. That Jesus was dead. His human nature, I mean, it was dead. He was tortured. He was crucified. He suffocated to death on the cross. That's how it worked. And so when they took him down, his body was lifeless. Now his divine nature obviously cannot die because he's God. But if it happened to his human nature, it also happened to his divine nature. And so his divine nature also experienced death in a very mysterious way. But Jesus was dead in the tomb. He didn't wake himself up. The Father and the Spirit resurrected him. So when you push those together, this the hypostatic union, and the fact that Jesus was a passive participant in his own resurrection, uh, one, it, it sort of it creates a little sense of awe. We're like, man, G- Jesus is amazing, right? Like, I, I don't know how that even works, but. To go back to the joy set before him in Hebrews 12, verse 2, it's really vague. You know, like it, A lot of times the New Testament writers, they'll, they'll say something, and then they'll list a ton of examples. But it just says that for the joy set that was set before him endured the cross. It doesn't list what those joys are, and maybe that's on purpose. So just for just a few minutes, I want to speculate a little bit. Uh, and it's worth it because Jesus' journey is our journey. I mean, his experience is our experience. His, his approach to obedience is our approach to obedience. And the joy set before him is the joy set before you and I. It's not different. It's the same. And maybe we have enough to go on. So you are looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting verse 21. For to this you have been called... I mean, there's a lot of significant things in there. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. I want to spend just a few minutes guiding our thoughts along this, this idea that when Jesus went to the cross, he was placing himself into a situation that he did not know the outcome of. That in his human nature, he's he's linear in time. He's said some really profound things and made some, some prophetic utterances, but when it comes down to it, uh, he didn't know. In his divine nature, he knew, but he wasn't accessing that. And so what if Jesus went to the cross, literally not sure if he would be raised from the dead? I know that sounds like such dangerous territory, doesn't it? Like you're worried that I'm like, like lightning's about to hit the building. Or I'm about to get turned into salt or any of those weird things that happen in the Bible, right? But what if, what if he really didn't know for sure? What if the joy set before him was not quite as crystal clear as maybe it would need to be for me or for you? A few years ago, um, I had appendicitis and, uh, some of you heard me tell a story before, and um, so I went to the emergency room, and they, uh, you know, they started running some tests and stuff, and and the doctors were, they were like, uh, they're like, you don't have appendicitis. You, there's something else going on. but It's not appendicitis. I'm like, okay, they're like we really can't figure out what it is. We're just gonna send you home. If it gets worse, come back. You know. I was like, ah, I'm pretty sure it's appendicitis. They're like, well it's not appendicitis. I'm like, ah, I think it's appendicitis. And they're like, what makes you so sure it's appendicitis? And I was like, well, um, I'm a big fan of the show Scrubs, <laughs> which is not the way you want to lead that discussion with your doctors ever. Uh, but I remembered an episode of Scrubs where this happened, and I have, uh, you know, went to WebMD, and it confirmed everything. And so I'm like, well, you know, because I have a Netflix account and access to the internet, I pretty much know exactly what's going on inside of me and they just laughed at me and they're like you don't know anything but we'll wait for this one test result to come back and I had it I knew it they were wrong (laughs) but it was I had uh my tonsils out when I was little but this is the first thing like as an adult where I was like I'm going to go into like surgery you know And so they put me in a a room, and they kind of were like, you know, hooked me up to whatever, kind of flushing me out and stuff for a while. And um, my dad had left, and he was going to come back in a few hours. They just wanted me to, like, just get ready for surgery. And so I was in my room by myself, uh, except when Juan Jacoby came in. He's a nurse there, and he walked in, and I was like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Go away. Uh, I was by myself for a few hours, and it it was just the weirdest place to be mentally, because... I was like, man, I'm about to go into surgery and there, there's this anesthesiologist that's going to uh, determine what it takes to put me under and then these, sur- these surgeons are going to go in and they're going to operate on me and uh, I'm just going to go in and basically like they're going to tell me to start counting from 100 backwards and I'm going to wake up later, I think. I was a completely passive participant in that. Like, I had no, nothing to do except I was like, I'm sick, I need you to make me better. All I had to do was sign the form saying I wouldn't sue him if something went wrong, and be there when it was time to operate. That's all I had to do. I had to trust that these doctors and nurses knew exactly what they were doing. Usually, the nurses more than the doctors, right? And I just had to—I just had to like let it roll. But I had enough information—not scrubs or WebMD, I had enough information from talking with doctors and nurses. And from knowing people who had appendectomies and like uh, all these kinds of things, being in a first world hospital, all these things that are there, I had so much to go on. But at the end of it, I didn't know what was going to happen after I started at 100 and counted backwards. I just didn't know. And it was the weirdest, weirdest experience. And some of you know exactly what that's like. I'm not trying to make a parallel to Jesus, you know, saying it was the same thing. But Jesus positioned himself... Like he willingly went to the cross and he said it's finished and he breathed his last and he was like submitting to the Father. So we're told to abide in faith and hope and love. When you put these together, when you put these verses together about the joy set before him and him entrusting himself to the one who judges, the cross was, it was him taking steps of faith and steps into hope, and him taking steps of love. He's modeled for us what our own journeys look like. So, so to use those as a template, what about faith? Well, for faith, I mean, he had to believe, he had to believe in God's believability. Like in his, in his humanness, right, in his human nature, he's lived for th- 33 or so years. He's, a, uh, he's a, like a student of the Old Testament scriptures, he's seen God do some pretty amazing things, but he still had to believe that God was believable. He had to trust the character of the Father. I mean, in Gethsemane, and he's you know he's praying this this prayer, and he says, "Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will." Does that sound like someone who um, who knows the future? Or does it sound like someone who, uh, who's he's seen crucifixions before, so he knows the physical side of it, but he also knows the prophecies. He knows what's at stake. He, he knows the plan. He knows what's ahead. Um, but he still had to trust in the character of the Father. All those sermons and all those healings and even the exorcisms, I mean, this is maybe the deepest level, level of faith in action we've ever seen before. That Jesus had to be able to look at the Father and say, I trust, I trust that you are good. I trust that you are powerful. He had to trust the power of the Spirit. I mean, he'd seen resurrection before with Lazarus, um, but this was different. I mean, this was, this was not death due to like, like natural causes. This wasn't murder. This wasn't uh, something like that. This was death due to God's holiness dealing with the sins of millions of people. This was not someone else's life, this was his own life. He was innocent, and it was voluntary. And perhaps all these things colliding together uh, brings us to the point where we're like, man, this was unlike anything that had ever happened. He had never seen God do this before. And so what if Jesus, in his human nature, really had to come down to it and say Do I believe that God is good and do I believe that God is powerful? What if that's at the heart of Gethsemane for him? What if that's why he was sweating blood? What if it wasn't even the physical pain? What if it was all the other stuff that was piling up? Well, Jesus made a conscious choice that God is good and God is powerful, that God is believable. So what if the joy set before him, what if him entrusting himself to God looks like him going to the cross? You know. What if that was it? What if the joy set before him was not your smiling face? What if the joy set before him was this completely believable God? His Father, the Holy Spirit, what if it was this massive act of faith unlike anything we've ever seen? So, all right, let's jump to hope. Well, Jesus had to believe the promises that God had made. That's, what, that's where our hope is found. Our, our hope is, is thrown onto the things, the promises that God has made, the, the things that we've seen him do, the things that we believe he is going to do. Our hope is, is thrown into the future and it's lassoed onto a person. Who is alive. Part of why our name is Living Hope. And so he had to believe that the promises God had made to him and to his people were true, and that God would keep them. So, Isaiah 53, we've been going through a little bit at a time uh, throughout Lent. Look at some of the promises that are made here. But like these are these are the this is a prophecy he would have begun to memorize from the time that he was bar mitzvahed and actually before then. And he would have known this and memorized this and taught on this and dwelled on this and be like, this this is me. These are the promises that are being made. These are spoken of me. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Oh, okay. So that's the promise he's holding on to, that God's going to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days that 's one of the promises that after the crushing will come this this different emergence in the chapter before that you know, it talks about it compares us to being sheep who have gone astray He says yeah, but now're their offspring their their family that one of the promises he 's holding on to is that this Grief is going to be worth it because all these children who are like sheep that are straying, going their own direction, are all going to, to emerge and return and come, and now they're going to be like sons and daughters, not rebellious sheep who are doing whatever they want. It's like, no, these are our children. This is our family. This is our kingdom. Jesus had to, he had to believe that this is true. He had to, verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus had to hope hey, this is going to be worth it. This is not all for nothing. It says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. For Jesus to say the promise is that it's worth it for me to bear their iniquities because they are going to be counted as righteous. Verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. For Jesus to to hope in this promise that, hey, there's victory on the other side of this death. That there are spoils of victory, and there's so much. And we're going to share it with every son and every daughter forever. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And he's like, that's what I have to do. That's the, that's the, the hope is all-encompassing. I have to go through this terrible thing. On the other side of this terrible thing is all of this greatness. He had to believe that. So in Matthew 17, he says, um, says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. So now he's starting to make some promises. Now does he know for certain? We don't know. But what if he didn't know? What if those are, you know, he tells us in John that he just says the words that the father tells him to say. So what if the father is saying, tell him you're going to be raised in three days. And he's going, wait, what? Huh? Tell him that? Tell him that. But they probably won't remember. They definitely won't remember. Tell him anyway. They'll remember when you're alive. What if on the cross, Luke twenty three, he says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." There's a hope that this is accomplishing forgiveness, and he believes it so much in that moment that he's declaring it and he's telling the Lord, saying, "God, forgive them. They don't know what they do." He ain't not changing his mind at that point. It's getting worse and worse and worse, but he's not reverting. Why? Because his hope is in something greater. He tells that one of the thieves next to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the, that's the statement of a dying person who's completely confident in what is next. But that's hope. That's not knowledge, right? That's hope. He doesn't know for a fact, but he believes it deeply. the end of his life, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed out his last. And he died. I mean, he went into death. He went and joined, like, the dead. That's where he went. He didn't die, and then, like, 30 minutes later, he was like, poof, pop back to life. No, they took him down. They buried him in a tomb. They rolled a rock in front of it, And they put guards outside so no one could steal the body. I mean, this was literal death. But all these statements that he's made and the prophecy he's holding on to, it, it demonstrates this deep hope in the fact that God will keep his promises. He made a conscious choice of where his hope was going to be found. So he models for us faith, he models for us hope, and he models for us love. I mean, through this whole thing, he had to love and be loved. That's, it's, it's a requirement. Like that's, that's what God has called us to. That's who he's made us. We love and we are loved. John 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul, reflecting on this in Romans 5, 8, says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, Again, a reflection, looking backwards says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the one to take all of that holiness dealing with sin, for him to be the one to take it. There's love From Jesus to the Father and the Spirit. May a love that we will only know in eternity. But we can learn more and more about it. Love for you, love for me, love for the nations, love for those who don't know him. All of this was done out of love. He loved through it all. He decided that it was worth it. So, at first it probably sounds kind of silly to think of it in these ways. But thinking about it from his perspective, from his human nature, Jesus had to say yes to a sacrificial death, a substitutionary death, and then he had to just trust God to raise him from the the grave. He positioned himself to die. Believing that there was resurrection on the other side of it, but not knowing, he decided that it was worth it. So, what does all this matter? Well, I can tell you why it matters, because he's alive right now. Like, it's not, I mean, like we're talking like historical fact. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. And not like Elvis sightings, you know, like a gas station outside of Tupelo. I'm talking like 40 days worth of hundreds of people seeing him, talking to him, looking at the scars in his hands. He's alive. So you tell me, is God believable? Is he he trustworthy? Is he powerful? Is, is, Is our hope being placed on him ridiculous? Do we think that he loves us? Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. Now I know a good preacher is supposed to bring it home right and make like really practical applications for our lives but i'm just gonna let you do that later you know what you're facing that requires faith and hope and love hopefully maybe we're seeing jesus as a pat- as patterning those things but it's really not about that at the end of the day We have to worship this God who's good and strong and loving and faithful. We have to adore this Savior who would willingly leave heaven and endure such heartache and entrust himself to the unknown just because he loves and is love. We must bow to this God who would form a plan that involves such self-sacrifice, including crushing his own son for the sake of eternally redeeming those he loves. We must stand in awe of this kind of power that can conquer sin and death and the enemy and absorb the pain that our rebellion caused. We must submit to the one who's done all this and opens up his life and kingdom to share in his sufferings as well as the spoils of his victory. Jesus said yes to this God and so should we. Let's stand together. So this is the God who offers himself to us. And so we're going to take communion. It's what we do. It's, it's a part of our response to him. Because like, just to be able to stand in awe and worship this God requires grace. We can't, I mean, on our own we, we bring nothing. And he offers that to us. He offers himself to us to connect us to this God and so one gift he's given us as his people is, is communion. It's the body and the blood that we're, we're tying into this uh, beautiful story. In the past, the present, they come colliding into this moment with the future and heaven and earth joined together and all of us come together and all just coincides in this beautiful step. And if, if you are a believer, if you want what Jesus is offering to you, you don't have to be a member of this church. If you believe that he is all these things, then come Taylor will be here. And you'll tear the bread off yourself and you'll dip it in the juice yourself. And as that happens, he's going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. And perhaps as we take it together this time, we can think about that joy set before him. About him entrusting himself to the Father. Those steps of faith and hope and love and all that converging into this one moment. And so you're welcome at the table. You're welcome to come and pray. You're welcome to stay where you are and sing. Whatever your response looks like, this is a a chance for us to react and respond to this like God that we have had in front of us the whole time. Before we take off and things get crazy, let's steward these moments really well. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are good to us in ways that we cannot uh, understand or even begin to narrow down, but... We don't have to thoroughly understand all these theological things. We don't have to, to be able to map it all out and define everything. We can, we can understand sacrifice. We can understand love. We can understand what it means to entrust ourselves to you. Jesus, we thank you for modeling this for us. And so in these moments, this really isn't about us. This is about you. The, you're the centerpiece of history. You, you are our joy. You are our reason for everything that we do. Things are always competing for that role in our lives, but this is our way of showing you: Hey, we get it. We know who you are. We believe that you are believable. We believe that you are good and powerful and faithful and trustworthy. you are with us offering yourself to us so we say yes in these different ways in these closing moments we say yes we ask for your help with all this in the name of Jesus Amen. The table is open let's respond for a few minutes before